This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. Last week, the White House made it much easier and cheaper to access taxpayer-paid research. Research you pay for, but then have to pay for again to read it behind a paywall. The Biden administration said data from federally funded work should all be available to the public for free immediately upon publication. Advocates of what's called open science celebrated. Publishers of scientific journals expressed some misgivings, as you might expect. And you may have been left scratching your head about what it all means. Well, here to help us unpack the new policy and its implications is Dr. Harold Varmus. He's a Nobel Prize winner, former director of the NIH, and co-founded in 2001 the Public Library of Science, an open access publishing platform. Dr. Varmus is professor of medicine at Weill Cornell Medicine and a senior associate at the New York Genome Center. Welcome back, Harold. It's been a while. Yes, Ara. Thank you very much. Glad to hear your voice. Thank you. Uh, you know, until now, as I say, most federally funded research has been available to the public only after, what, a year behind a paywall? Uh, tell me what you think this amount, announcement from the White House means in, in practical terms for the public. Yeah, well, first of all, Ira, this is a long-standing um, battle between uh, scientists who want to make work especially work funded by citizens' dollars, much more available to all scientists and to all members of the public. Um, so this has been going on for over 20 years, ever since the internet was perceived as being a, an efficient way to transmit scientific findings. Uh, what specifically is endorsed, indeed promoted by this new memo from the Office of Science and Technology Policy in the White House, is um, a directive that says that all federal agencies, not just those that are heavily uh, supportive of, of science, but any that support any scientific or research activities uh, must have a plan that allows uh, their grantees uh, to put their work in the public domain immediately upon publication. And what that means is the public has a, an easy way to see anything that has been published. It has been possible to see a lot of the work um, after a one-year embargo. The National Institutes of Health, the NIH, uh, established uh, over 20 years ago a public digital archive called PubMed Central, which has the full text of articles submitted to it uh, by its grantees. Um, but that archive was not nearly as useful as it might have been because of reluctance of uh, journals to allow that to happen to articles on which they own the copyright, uh, because uh, investigators uh, have been compliant with the desires of their favored journals and for many other reasons, until Congress said to the NIH uh, well over a decade ago, uh, you must get this material into a public database at least within a year after publication. That happened, and now PubMed Central has millions of articles widely used every day by every investigator, but it's imperiled by not having adequate access to re results when they're published. Mm-hmm. Is, is this only aimed at, at uh, medical research, or is it every kind of research that's In available? Fact, one of the things that's remarkable about uh, the new memo that was just released is that it addresses all forms of research, even research in the humanities, and certainly research in social sciences, and as well as natural sciences, and in um, all fields of science. And I, I should say that you asked about where you can go to see things, and in the biomedical sphere, it's, it's PubMed Central, but... Uh, there are other ways to see things. Some institutions maintain their own uh, their own server 
of papers, um, physicists and astrophysicists, mathematicians, computer scientists tend to use a different mechanism that's based on posting articles at the time uh, that they are written and even before peer review, preprint servers. So right, right. You put your article, and that's that's a phenomenon that's been particular to, to physics and the related uh, disciplines uh, as far back as 1991. And that's been a remarkable feature, which now is affecting biomedical work as well, because especially during the pandemic, scientists in my own field have been uh, posting their results in the form of preprints. And that allows scientists to see work uh, even before it's gone through what could be a, a lengthy process of peer review. So preprint servers are another way to, to deliver the goods. But in this case, the OSTP memo uh, specifically addresses articles that are peer-reviewed and published. Now, this memo, uh, as, you, as you say, is uh, saying that making research more available will make science itself also more equitable and more effective. How do you view that? How does that work? Well, in several ways. In the article, uh, we, we've, we've emphasized the major thing, which is the, re the elimination of an embargo. But, but uh, the article, the, the, the memo does have many other things in it that are particularly appealing. It requires that a, a detailed plan be made, not just for, for uh, displaying published articles, but, but also for making the materials uh, useful in machine-based learning exercises so that the format is, is compatible with extracting as much information as possible. Uh, and um, it also addresses some social issues that have become quite important during the pandemic. That is the credibility of science, the reliability of science, the openness of science. Uh, science is a positive public good. Uh, and I think those are very important issues in this time. Can, can you unpack the connection and the importance, let's talk about this, between research published and its impact on fields like uh, medicine? Why does publication and how it's paid for or accessed actually affect the way research is done and touches our lives. Publication really is the lifeblood of science. If you do the science and you don't tell other people about it, it's as though it weren't done. It's useful in many ways, in the, most obviously in uh, allowing the growth of scientific ideas and the validation of those ideas, extension to new things. Uh, so scientists communicating with each other is probably the primary mission but an even more important mission, though perhaps not quite as prevalent, is the, the translation of what's been done into practical products. And that, of course, is one of the strengths of American science, the remarkable relationship between uh, academic basic science um, and uh, science and industry that results in important products in the fields of health and energy and everything else uh, that was first articulated uh, by the U.S. government 75 years ago. I think it's often unappreciated how important a moment it is in, in, in the life of every scientist when a paper they've written describing their results actually gets published. So speaking of which, a lot of has changed with the data sharing policies we saw when COVID-19 appeared in 2020. Uh, I, I'm thinking about how, how did data sharing allow us to respond better to the pandemic? You bring up an important point because that is also embedded in this memo. That is the intention that all agencies have policies that allow the data that's relevant to the conclusions drawn in these published papers be accessible for reading and for machine learning. It's obviously important when data sets are limited to have access to data from other sources that can be amalgamated in a simple way 
there's no doubt in the minds of almost everybody that uh, that the rapid development of the RNA genome of the coronavirus was essential for, first of all, identifying what the agent of COVID-19 was, but then also in, in developing the, the vaccines that have been so important in trying to control this pandemic uh, and developing various kinds of tests that, that allow us to detect the emergence of the variants that have plagued efforts to do public health control of the virus. So I think there are many ways in which uh, it's obvious that, that sharing data at the very, very earliest stages through sequence databases and uh, the speed of communication has been remarkable and, of course, helped by the fact that many of our leading periodicals have followed this so closely and so well. Mm -hmm. at, at some point, somebody has to pay for it. Who winds up picking up the tab for the public here? So this is important. And one of the things that some people accuse advocates like me of neglecting is the fact that there are real costs for publication. I mean, nobody's saying that the publication is free. It's just uh, we're trying to promote access. But someone's got to pay the costs of uh, doing peer review. The costs are much less than they might otherwise be because the authors and the reviewers don't get paid. Nevertheless, there are costs. And how do they get covered? Well, the costs should be borne and are largely borne by the funders of research. And if you view the publication process as an element of the research experience, which it certainly is, it's a very small element, as I mentioned, just a couple of percent. And of course, essential if you're going to um, make use of the work that gets done with the money. So in general, it's the funders who, who pay. I should step back here just a, a minute and say that uh, one of the things we haven't discussed is the rise of open access journals, like the public's library of science journals. These are journals that make their work immediately available uh, without restriction on the, at the time of publication. Uh, they don't hold the copyright. The copyright's held by the author. Uh, and these articles are free to everybody and placed in repositories like, like PubMed Central. The cost of publishing is supported by payment by the investigators who use some of their grant money, a very small amount of it, but a significant amount, to pay the publication fees. And those journals work. They make money and they do, they do fine. Uh, they don't make the kinds of profits that have been made by traditional subscription-based publishers like Elsevier and, and many others. But if you look at this from the point of view of the, of the funder of research, one of the most essential elements in the whole research process is publication, because that gets the word out and shows that uh, the money they've invested is actually used to generate results that are meaningful to the public and to the scientific community. I want to take this time uh, to, to change gears a little bit because I, I have you here and I want to take advantage of the decades you have in public service and, and in research and ask you about the, the time we live in where, where huge conflicts and outright scientific disinformation is circulating. What is your opinion on this? How have you seen this arc in your career? And is this something you're increasingly worried about? Well, I am worried. Um, of course, it, it's hard not to be. I think what we see are actually a number of things. One is that science has become incredibly more powerful, certainly in my own field. The kinds of things we can do today with modern genomics and biochemistry and gene manipulation and, and uh, computation and a variety of other things just makes the kind of work we do so much more uh, exciting and penetrating uh, that it's hard not to be enticed by a career doing this kind of thing. The second arc I see is that responses to some of these temptations to do science has resulted in a large influx of, uh, of talented people 
without a commensurate increase in the amount of funds that are available or number of positions available to do this kind of work. And although there's been some outlet through the biotech and pharmaceutical industry, in general, people entering our field feel a strong sense of competition. And that has uh, affected the mood in the community to a significant extent. And it actually has an effect on the kind of directive that that we're talking about today, because it increases the the value of publishing in the very best journals and ensuring that uh, your name goes to the top of the heap when people are considering uh, folks for promotions and appointments and grants and prizes. And then the third issue, which is one that I think is uh, linked to a number of things, not simply to the pandemic, is a fairly large measure measure of uh, distrust of, of scientific work, which is why many of us feel that by becoming more open and transparent, that the sci- that scientists have a greater chance of, of having the process of work they do be understood. Science is hard. Uh, science is an effort to understand the way the world works, and uh, it's not so easy to figure it out. Just by seeing a new disease has occurred, you don't instantaneously know what all the answers are. And working these things out, it's going to be a course that is riddled with um, dead ends and reversals and misunderstandings and mistakes. And these things need to be explained and understood. Uh, Not always so easy, Um, but uh, it seems to me the process is basically an honorable one. And the more open the process can be, the more likely it is that we will expose misunderstandings and very rare deviations from normal practice in science that uh, can result in non-reproducible results. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Talking to Dr. Harold Varmus about the value of publicly accessible scientific research. Now that we're into this, this pandemic, or three years or more into this pandemic, and watching as an observer and with your experience, the, have you noticed any strengths and weaknesses about how we have all handled this and what would you change or handle differently? There are several things. First of all, I think in the U.S. we have undervalued practices in public health. And it's been very clear during this pandemic that we have underinvested in our public health infrastructure, that schools of public health need strengthening, that public health investigators need more funds for, uh, for the kind of research they do, that we need a stronger level of sustained surveillance for infectious diseases. New methods have emerged and some are now being used almost in a conventional way, like the monitoring of of sewage here in New York to detect, most recently involved the detection of polio virus in our our sewage. Uh, Secondly, I think most people in the public domain have seen that science can move incredibly fast in response to a pandemic, much faster than ever has occurred before. That's a very healthy thing too. Thirdly, I see people understanding some deeper issues in thinking about how virus evolution has occurred that affects their thinking about evolution in general and about the way in which genomics can be used as a tool not only to monitor and and, uh, understand infectious diseases, but to think about uh, many other diseases as well. So the general interest in science in the general public is incredibly high right now. It's just that there is a very lively and sometimes almost despicable debate when it comes to attacks on individuals uh, that uh, undermines uh, confidence in science in a way that we'll have to address by other means. Hopefully, uh, making the scientific literature more open will be one of the ways in which that happens. And no weaknesses that you would try to shore up or might change about how this, this all went down or is going down? Well, yeah, sure. I mean, that's a different question. But I 
I do think that uh, there are ways in which the atmosphere in which science is being done can be changed. One of the things that we're all terribly concerned about is the fact that our historical minority populations, Blacks, Hispanics, Native Americans, so forth, have been woefully underrepresented in the scientific community. And many of us are making efforts to try to reverse that. Uh, there's no doubt that uh, the pandemic has illuminated some of those uh, discrepancies. Indeed, just today, the evidence that, uh, that life expectancy has been particularly shortened in those disadvantaged communities, again, an illustration of the fact that science has not served our disadvantaged populations and our economically less secure populations as well as it does the, uh, the current majority uh, white affluent population. That's something that needs attention, and it's, it's a different topic, but it's one that's incredibly mm -hmm. important to me and to many of my colleagues who are seeking ways to increase representation of Black, Hispanic, and Native American populations in the scientific community. Well, Dr. Varmus, I want to thank you for taking time to be with us today. My pleasure. Always good to hear from you, Ira. Dr. Harold Varmus, professor of medicine at Weill Cornell Medicine in New York, former director of the NIH and co-founder of the Public Library of Science.